Gene Therapy Podcast on CWN Sports. Thank you for listening. I'm Coach Gene Clemens, and for the next hour, come work some issues out with me. No guests today, but you have me on the couch, and I promise not to hold anything back. With the announcement that David Cully is no longer the head football coach with the Houston Texans, that brings the number of head coaches in the NFL, the number of black head coaches in the NFL, back down to one. It's a number that is that is familiar because the one happens to be the only one that it's been who's had a consistent run in his time, and that is Mike Tomlin. I I I, I thought about coming on here and, and boring you with all the statistics that I talk about in the article. And if you haven't read the gene therapy article column this week, make sure that you check that out. I thought I would hit you with all the statistics, but to be honest, do they really matter? Do you really care about the statistics? And and to a large extent, we have to start asking ourselves, do we really care that there are no black coaches in the NFL or that there is only one consistent black coach in the head coach in the NFL. Like we keep saying that, wow, well, with all of these black players, you would think that more black coaches, you know, ipso facto type of thing. And yet, nah, we keep seeing the white coaches continue to get jobs, and we'll get into it more. Not a lot of black coaches ascending quickly. Always an excuse on why a black coach isn't qualified, yet an unqualified white coach is. And and ladies and gentlemen, if you think that I'm race baiting, the only thing I can tell you is that these are facts. These are facts. If you look around the NFL right now and you start to put together lists of the hot names in NFL coaching circles, the names that you're hearing all the time, you're not going to find many black faces attached to those names. See, it's interesting when Brian Flores was fired because people said, oh, well, you know, he'll have another job immediately. And my my response was, yes, he should, because he never should have been fired in Miami. But will he? Because the moment he was fired from Miami, all of the negative press came out about him. All the negative press came out about him. Oh, well, he didn't get along with the general manager, who happens to be black. I think that's important. 
oh, well, he didn't have a great relationship with the young players on the team. The young players were the ones that were saying, "Ah, I'm not feeling this guy. He didn't know how to talk, how to communicate with the young players. Then Then it started coming out that he had issues with Tua. That him and Tua weren't on the same page. It came out that he said, or that he supposedly told Tua, uh, we should have taken Mac Jones. Whether it's true or not is inconsequential. However, the timing is perfect. It is the 100% normal game plan that we get when we are talking about black coaches in the NFL. Anytime black coaches get fired, all you start to hear is the negative stuff. Especially when they are fired for reasons we can't fathom. Anytime you hear black coaches' names get brought up in, brought up for jobs, all you begin to hear leak is the negative stuff. See, right? You see how that works? Eric the enemy can't get a job. Not because he's not as qualified as any other coach, but because there's a narrative around him that does not allow that to break through. That does not allow him to get the opportunity that so many of his contemporaries have been afforded. Many of which have not put in the work that he has. I'm here to talk about it. We'll start with this one. The first thing we hear about Eric Bieniemy was, well, you know, he doesn't really call the plays. Andy Reid calls the plays. That's always interesting to me because that's not what they said about the previous two offensive coordinators that were able to get head coaching jobs from Kansas City from Andy Reid. They were the offensive coordinators underneath Andy Reid. They were recommended by Andy Reid. And even though many believe Andy Reid was the one calling the plays, they never used that as a slight or a diss to tell us why those two men would not be afforded the opportunity to be head coaches. Nope. They just scooped them up. Matt Nagy, come on down. Yeah, yeah, yeah. See, when we get to Eric Bieniemy, the thought process, well, okay, well, he's not calling the plays. And on the outside, it just sounds, it sounds, you know, okay, cool. He's not calling the plays. But what are they really saying? When they when people say, oh, he's not calling the plays, what they're really saying is he's not smart enough to make these decisions in a real-time situation. So even if he's doing the game planning, this is a whole nother level of intelligence that you need. And he does not possess that. 
it is a it is a 100% way to decrease or diminish the intellectual capacity of the offensive coordinator by saying he's not calling the plays or to take play calling duties away from the offensive coordinator that is a way to diminish the mental the mental acuity of that coordinator if you don't believe me then you don't know any better if you don't believe me then you don't know any better now whether somebody's doing that consciously or subconsciously does not matter it's being done and in my head I just sit back and continue to cringe because I know, I know it's not the truth. I know in my heart and I know because I have a brain that works pretty darn well that these people who are putting this game plan together are 100% capable of going out there and calling the game. But the ability to call a game well comes with reps, just like anything else. The longer you do it, the more situations you see, the better rhythm you get for it. The better the rhythm, the better, better game plan you, I mean, the better execution of the game plan you call. But if you don't actually get the reps, then everybody's in the same boat. So this idea that Eric B. Enemy is somehow diminished because people believed he wasn't calling plays, that, that, that plays into the narrative. And then once we realize, whoa, whoa, wait a minute, the enemy is calling the plays, here comes the personal. Oh, well, he dealt with these things in his past and he had this happen to him. He had that happen to him. He did this to such and such. And so we do what we always do. We, we degrade him for that until we start looking at the history and going, okay, this was 20 years ago. How long must a man suffer how, much, how long must a woman endure mistakes that they made in the past? If I've made a mistake in the past, I don't want to be paying for that mistake for the rest of my life. How is that fair? How is it okay that I have to continually answer for something that I've already paid my debt Two, that I've grown from. I'm not even the same dude now as I was 20 years ago. So why am I still answering questions and paying for things that happened 20 years ago? Those are the questions that someone like Eric B. Enemy has to answer. Those are the questions that people who defend Eric B. Enemy has to answer, have to answer. Those are the questions that people who promote Eric Bieniemy have to answer. And that's the question that front offices have to answer when people say, is he really a candidate? 
because of this. It's a cold world out there. So now when you add in, now when you add in the perception of lacking the intelligence, when you add in that with the perception that the person's not a good dude, okay. But it doesn't stop there because we have to have these things come in threes. What's the third thing that gets them? Well, you know, when he, the reports are that when he sat down with the team, he just didn't sound like a head coach. He just didn't sound how they would want their head coach to sound. Oh, yeah, that's how they, because now it's about their voice and diction and how they've been, how they've been raised or the, the, the areas that they've been raised in and what that might have done to their, um, to the type of vernacular that they use, which has nothing to do with their ability to coach, nothing to do with their ability to lead men, but it has everything to do with the perception of what they want their coaches to look like and to sound like. We see examples of people who are horrible speakers every day in the NFL. Does anybody remember any of these Dan Campbell like press conferences? He did not sound like a head coach. He said, I said it before, he sounded like a special teams coordinator or a tight ends coach, which he was. You listen to these Nick Sirianni um, pressers. Does he sound like a head coach? Or does he sound like somebody trying to figure it out? You can go down the line and find many. Joe Judge is another one. Does he sound like a head coach? Or does he sound like someone that's just regurgitating coach speak? You turn over to your whiz kids and 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 the, the great white hopes that they all label with offensive genius. And you see how quickly they ascend up the ladder. So you're telling me that Sean McVay, who made his bones by play calling, who's essentially had to break in a new offensive coordinator almost every year is turning over his play-calling duties or most of his offensive game-planning duties to new guys every single year without his hands being in it? Yet, I have never heard anybody say anything about the guys who are getting jobs off of the Sean McVay tree. I've never heard anyone say Well, that guy clearly is being helped by Sean McVay. That guy clearly isn't the same talent as Sean McVay. Sean McVay is the one calling the plays. Sean McVay is the one whispering in the quarterback's ear. It's not that offensive coordinator. It's Sean McVay. 
I've never heard that. I've never heard anybody say, well, you know, it's Kyle Shanahan. He's the one that's pulling the strings behind that San Francisco offense and that Atlanta offense when he was there. Not these other guys. Shanahan has had a lot of offensive coordinators. He's lost a lot of staff over the years. And yet we're supposed to believe that the coordinator who is the first time coordinator, he was only the run game coordinator and came up as a wide receivers coach. We're supposed to believe that he is the person that's pulling the strings behind the offense in San Francisco, not the proven commodity in Kyle Shanahan. Okay, cool. If we want to believe that, let's take this into account. If the offensive coordinator in San Francisco that's not Kyle Shanahan is so brilliant and it's new age football and it's all of these things, right? Space age exploration in football. Then why can't that offensive coordinator find a way to utilize Trey Lance in an offense where their quarterback is simply a game manager? Do they just not want to do it? Or does he not know how to use that young man? Because even if you felt like Trey Lance was a season or two away, you still need to be finding ways to get him packages. And you've got to find a way to utilize the talent or else why did you trade assets to move up to get him if your plan was to not play him at all, to not find any value for him in your offense when your offense is is predicated on being smarter and out-scheming everybody else? I don't know the answer to these things, but I know that someone should, right? Someone should be able to answer him. But no, he'll just remain as one of the hot commodities out there for a coaching job. Brian Dable, the offensive coordinator with Buffalo, has done a great job up in Buffalo getting the best out of Josh Allen. However, being a head coach means seeing the entire situation and putting together a team that best exhibits what you're going to deal with. Brian Dable has created an offense in Buffalo that is best suited for Indianapolis. It's best suited for Tampa. It's best suited for New Orleans. Places where you're going to get a similar climate every game, or at least every home game. 
So half of your games, you're going to know exactly what you're dealing with. Ladies and gentlemen, in Buffalo, New York, you don't know what you're going to get. Their game this weekend is going to be in zero temperatures. Will the wind be blowing? I don't know. Will there be snow on the ground? I don't know. But I do know this. I watched them play a game versus the New England Patriots with a coaching staff that understands how to game plan. And I watched them play that game versus New England in Buffalo where it snowed, where Josh Allen was relatively ineffective and lost the game. He was relatively ineffective and lost the game to a team that decided to let their quarterback, who is not a runner, throw the ball maybe three to five times. I mean, what else do we have to say? The running game in, 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 in Buffalo has been terrible all year outside of when Josh Allen runs it. Now, over the last couple of weeks, with the schedule versus teams that were not going to be in the playoffs, were not going to be factors in the playoffs, They've given a little bit more credence to the run game. But when you have a Cam Newton-like presence, how do you not utilize him in that fashion to help bolster your offense? Seems only natural. So you have to question whether or not Brian Dable can, can run a team. Well, you have to think about more than just yourself. But we don't. We don't. We'll just elevate him to the top of the list. We'll elevate him to the top of the list. Yet, I had a New York Giants fan argue me up and down, quoting statistics, that Patrick Graham was not a head coaching candidate. And he made all of he, he quoted all of the statistics about the defense. Oh well, quarterbacks are quarterbacks are completing over seventy percent on that defense all year. Okay. Oh well, running backs are getting over seven yards a rush versus him. Uh, okay. Oh well. They've given up this many touchdowns. Oh, okay. And then my retort was, was simple. Nobody cares about completion percentage until they want to use it to discredit somebody. Because when we give people completion percentage in order to boost them up or to give them props, people go, ah, that's overrated. That's not a good stat to use. So they come back home, right? And then when we get to then when we get to Patrick Graham and I go, okay, well, 
You don't you don't care about completion percentage until you want to discredit Patrick Graham. You're seven yards a carry. That's a joke. Nobody's getting seven yards a carry. No backs getting seven yards a carry consistently over a season. It might be a lot. It might be four or something. It might be five. Seven, come on, hyperbole. Last but not least, not all touchdowns are on the defense. If you just think about how many times the Giants turned the ball over on offense this year and left their defense in a position to to play to guard the goal line from only 20 yards away or 30 yards away or 10 yards away or five yards away, when you see that, when you understand that's what they had to deal with, can you really blame them for giving up yards? Can you blame, excuse me, for giving up touchdowns? If Patrick Graham had an offense that was somewhat consistent, they wouldn't have to play as much defense. The reason why the completion percentage is so high because their defense is a bend-but-don't-break defense. Hey, we'll let you complete it all up underneath. We're not going to let you hit us over the top. So we get the idea that Patrick Graham isn't ready to be a head coach based off stats alone, and then we ignore the stats with other guys who have not even existed in a coordinator role before we're ready to elevate them to head coach status. This thing isn't right, man. It's not right. And the idea that you that you give Steve Wilkes a job for a season with a team that you know is about to be a train wreck, you set him up for failure, and then when he fails, you fire him, and you drag his name through the mud. You say things as if, well, he was over his head. He should have never been a head coach. Why? Because he had one bad year where he was not set up to win? If a guy gets everything they need, right? If a guy gets everything they need, if a coach gets everything they need, if she gets all the resources she needs in order to be a quality head coach and they fail after they're able to successfully put their stamp on the team. Okay, cool. If you find out that timetable and it's faster than normal. Okay, cool. But after a year, you don't know nothing. You don't know Nathan. especially when you consider the fact that the situation that he's put in is one where you're going to fail. But Steve Wilkes got treated that way. And now David Cully has been treated that way. Set up to fail. Hey, let's make sure we get the quarter. Let's make sure that the quarterback is not coming back. Let's bring another guy in at quarterback. Does a good job of writing the ship. The other guy got hurt. 
Quarterback got hurt, said goodbye to a bunch of defensive players, said goodbye to a bunch of offensive weapons, traded away so many people, brought in a bunch of guys on one-year deals just as placeholders so you could clean up the cap and have everything ready for this 2022 push. You thought you were going to get the number one overall pick. At least maybe that's what the thought process was. Hey, that's, you know, not going to be very good this year. Except somebody forgot to tell David Cully, who's waited 60 years for the opportunity to be a head coach and is going to try his best to make it as good as possible. So at the end of the season, they're still competing, which means what? They haven't given up on the man, which is what? Invaluable. Why is that invaluable? Because once you, once somebody knows that they can rely on you, they are more than likely going to do more to help you. And so those men played for David Cully down the stretch. And they performed admirably. And they, and, they, and they left people out of the playoffs. They made sure that other people were not allowed to go to the playoffs. Why? Because they were. And at the end of the season, they had four wins. And the season before that, right? The season before that, with Deshaun Watson and with Hopkins for half the season or however long it was and with J.J. Watt and the people on that defense, that team went, you guessed it, five for five, right? So that team with all of that talent and a different coach, they won four games. David Cully with none of the talent Won four games. I believe that's a win for Cully. Nope. Get him out of here. Down in Tampa years ago, Raheem Morris, I talk about it. They set the man up for failure. They brought him in. Oh, we're going to make you one of the youngest coaches in the history of the NFL. We're going to make you one of the youngest coaches in the history of the NFL. But we're going to give you no resources. We're trading away all of the veterans. We're getting them out of here. We're hitting the reset button. We're going to draft you a project, that quarterback. And we're not going to sign any free agents, at least none that cost any money. We are going to sign guys that are on the veteran minimum. We're going to bring in rookies. That's what you're going to have to work with. And Raheem Morris, oh, and by the way, Raheem, you don't get to choose any of your staff you know, or anything like that. We'll, we'll get that done for you. And all Raheem Morris did was go out there and do his job. And he took that squad to 10 wins in a season and was the runner-up for Coach of the Year. And the next year, he was fired. The next year, he was fired when the reality set back in on the score. 
on the scorebook scoreboards, and he had a subpar um, season and record. Why? Because they had cleared the books. They had finally gotten Chucky off the off the books. They had cleared those. And so now it's time to make moves again. It's time to get our real quote, our real quote unquote coach in here. Because Raheem Morris was never supposed to be the answer. And Raheem Morris was never supposed to win 10 games. If he had not won 10 games in his second season as the head coach of Tampa Bay, he would have been fired that season. But because he had a 10-win season, he was up for coach of the year, didn't win it. Grace was shown, right? Yeah, oh well, yeah, you know, we believe in you now. We're still not going to give you any players to improve this team. We're still going to stick to this model that we have. And at the end, we'll get you out of there. And then we'll bring in a coach. We'll bring in a coach and we'll let him spend all the money. We'll let him use all the resources. And what will he do? Nothing. Not a 10-win season in sight. For the next how long? What, what was it? Six, seven years? After that 10 that 10 win that 10 win hoodie season of Raheem Morris until now recently with Tom Brady. That's a long time to go. And if I'm not mistaken, four coaches. Since Raheem. Shiganu, Lovey Smith, then Dirk Cutter, then Bruce Arians. That's four different coaches since the last time that they had 10 wins from the Raheem Morris regime. Yeah, man, it's not fair. It's not fair at all. And, 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 and the thing I want people to understand is when I talk about how coaches are being treated, you got to look at not only how much opportunity that how, how much opportunity they're being they're, they're being allowed to advance, but then how long they're being given to make things happen. Joe Judge got fired after two years. That was one year too long. Everything that Joe Judge showed this year, he showed last year. Then why is it that he kept his job? Uh, You know, you got to give him a chance to grow. And I'm okay with that. As long as that is consistent. As long as that's consistent, we can make that work. As long as there's transparency and we can say okay if you're a court if you're a coach in the nfl and after a year you have a horrible year we're getting you out of there in year two 
or after two years, if you're struggling, then we're getting you out of there. I'd love for it to be uniformed. I'd love for it to be a, a, a situation where these front offices have to, you know, stick to their contracts. Man, we'd love to fire you, but we got to give you five years. Well, what happens when that person's able to turn that over in five years? Because I just don't, I don't understand how a league full of football players who, by the way, for, for as much as people want to talk, are the most educated athletes in all of team sports because they're the only ones that are forced to go to school for three years. So these are not dumb people coming into the NFL. And then they go into coaching. They, 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 they spend the hours. And when it's their chance to elevate, they don't. When it's their chance to get a head coaching job or we, when they have the credentials to get a head coaching job, there's always somebody else that comes in with less experience, less cachet, but more friends that do this. And now the brother is just sit sat there left to try to wonder what it is he needs to do or what it is she needs to do in order to excel up this ladder. Because it's just not, it's not fair. It's not equitable. How crazy is it that the Rooney rule is called the Rooney rule because the Roonies are the only ones who seem to actually believe in the rule? They are the only ones who have been steadfast with the rule. The rest of the people are like, we should be able to hire who we want based off of based off of their qualifications. Excuse me, if you were going off qualifications, Eric Bienemy has more of it than any of these offensive geniuses, offensive masterminds that you've given jobs over the last few years. Who are we fooling? Raheem, how much longer does Raheem Morris have to wait for his second chance, for his second bite at the apple? So if we're if we're really being honest, right? If we're being honest, if it was about you know, who was the most qualified, then half of the NFL's coaches would have to be fired because none of them are really that qualified. Some of them have never, a lot of them, let me take that back, have never played football at a high level. 
there was some type of nepotism involved in their hiring. And then on top of that, when you look at when you look at um, what they've done as an assistant coach, they've skipped steps. Or they're riding the coattails, they're riding the coattails of another coach who's already established. I don't know. I don't know what else people want want to see. I don't know what else people want to know. It's one of those things that if you know, you know. And when you know, you've got to do better. Except we know, we understand it, and we don't try to do any better. We keep doing the same things over and over again, expecting a different result. Whenever you do something over and over and over again, expecting a different result, that, my friends, is the definition of insanity. That is the definition of insanity. And why are we just driving ourselves insane? Because we don't want to do the obvious thing, which is give these dudes a job. Give them an opportunity to cook. Let them run the show. And if they don't get it done, make changes when you've had sufficient amount of time. I ain't mad at I ain't mad at nobody that gets an opportunity. I'm not mad at any coach who gets an opportunity. This isn't me saying don't hire those young guys. This is me saying those guys they exist in black men as well. There are black men out there who exhibit that. Those guys who are supposedly the next genius, that can exist in Tampa Bay, where Byron Leftwich is the offensive coordinator. And watch experience, played the game at a high level, respected around the league by coaches and by players, and is young enough to have embraced a lot of the modern ideology of the game while also understanding the base root old school concepts of football. How is this man not your number one candidate in 2022? We're so progressive. Everything is about image. Yet when we look in the NFL, Every year, we sit back and go, where are all the brothers? Where are all the head coaches that are black? Where are all the GMs that are black? I don't want to sound crazy, but, like, why do these guys just keep to get jumping the lot? just keep to get jumping the line over these other dudes who are qualified. 
Now, watch, watch the hustle because the Rooney Rule does exist. So we hear about every black person that gets an interview. We hear about every person that gets an interview. Why? Because they tell us about it so that they can prove that they've interviewed somebody to satisfy their Rooney rule. And when they satisfy that Rooney rule, they hire the person that they wanted to hire in the first place, which normally does not look like that black man that they interviewed. It's the bait and switch. Hey, look at the black guys. Look at the black guys. Hire the white guy. Look at the black guys. Look at the black guys. Hire the white guy. Oh, look. They hired a black guy. They hired seven white guys. Oh, oh well, well, Gene, there are just more of them. No, there's not. There are just more of them that get elevated to a status where they could be considered a head coach. But there's not more black, more white head, white head coach candidates than black head coach candidates. They're not just white guys who are suitable to coach in college and then move up and no black guys that are considered. You're not having to build black coaches from scratch. So many of these guys are leaving the league staying around, being active, and hoping that their name is called. Not so that they can play football, but so that they can coach it. Look at all the names that are going to be out there. Jared Mayo, oh my gosh, hot candidate, rising up. Some people think that he might be the number one candidate for the job in Houston. Well, if he is, congratulations. But I'll believe it when I see it. And one's not going to be enough. You can't just, like, mesmerize us with one or two black hires when that only brings the number up to three. How are we supposed to respect and appreciate the hiring of black head coaches when we look around with even the hires and say, oh, well, that's, what, 5% of the league? Meanwhile, 65, 70, 85% of the league, black. Like, what are we doing? How are we letting this this type of stuff happen? I'll tell you how. We have not put a stop to it. And this is just my mind. I could be wrong. This is just in my mind. This is my brain. If black players were to stand up as a collective and actually ride for teams to hire black coaches, then guess what teams would do? You guessed it. They would hire black coaches. Because the owner's not dumb. 
Like, yeah, the NFL is about the shield, but this isn't the UFC. They're not just going to get their money regardless of who plays. Especially not when everybody could stand up in unison and go, this is ridiculous. We want black coaches. We want them now. And walk that walk. It wouldn't take much. Just a little sign of solidarity amongst the brothers to say, hey, we want representation at the head coach position. Or we're not playing. We want representation at the general manager position. Or we're not playing. We'll take our ball and we'll go home. But on every single time that there's some type of labor dispute, the players never pull their weight. The players never pull their weight. They always want it easy. They always want it easy. Oh, I've got my money? Oh, okay, cool. I'm good. Man, the coach's money doesn't even affect the player's money. So why can't we get those players to stand up and uniformly say, this isn't going to work for us? We can get them to stand up for some other stuff. So I don't understand why we can't get them to stand up for this. If you can get them to stand up for other things, why wouldn't you stand up right here in the paint for the person that looks at you and sees himself? A person that looks at you and sees herself. Why can't we ride for those people? They're right there. All we have to do is reach the olive branch out. All we have to do is be willing to stand up, fight. But don't fight with don't fight with the hands, fight with the mind, fight with the pocketbook. We always talk about boycotting the NFL and then we look at the numbers and say, "Oh, well, the NFL seems to be making just as much money as they made before, if not more." Oh, but we're going to boycott the NFL. What good does that do? Nielsen doesn't care about any of that stuff. Ratings does not care about how many black people are there. So all I encourage people to do is to go out there and look, man. Like, look what they're doing. Look how, look how we're being... But bamboozled, how we're being swindled, how we're being hoodwinked. One coach, one coach. One coach in the NFL. That is not going to work.
one coach in the NFL is not going to work. Two coaches in the NFL, it's not going to work. Three coaches in the NFL is not going to work. Even if this cycle, every team that's looking for a coach hires a black head coach. If every team in this cycle that's looking for a coach, Denver, right? Denver, Houston, New York, Miami. That only brings the number up to five? That's it? Are we supposed to be happy? Are we, are we supposed to be happy that 10% of the league's coaches are black? Not even 10%. What would it be? Like 12%, something like that? 13%? Leave a comment. Tell me what the percentage is. Even if all of the positions are open, are filled with black head coaches. That still does not solve the problem. And let's see how much time they get. Let's see how much rope they're allowed. Because I can tell you that in Arizona, if there was a black coach, they would not have gotten as much time as Cliff Kingsbury has gotten. I don't know how, how many times I have to tell you guys this or, or what do I have to do to allow you to know that I'm not just, you know, race baiting. This is true. These are facts. It, this isn't a perceived problem. This isn't a problem that has been made up. This isn't a problem that, that, that people... Are, are fabricating, hey, this doesn't really exist. This is something that's fabricated. No. This is 100% a problem. And it's going to be a problem until somebody says, we no longer want it to be a problem. And when they do, they will answer the call the way that a call should be answered. With action. Not with Woe's Me's, but with action. Ladies and gentlemen, that's the Gene Therapy Podcast today. I'm Coach Gene Clemens. Make sure that you read the Gene Therapy column back at one. Make sure that you check out any past episodes of the Gene Therapy Podcast or um, the comments that, I mean, the columns that go with it. Follow me on any social media at Gene Clemens and make sure that you subscribe to the YouTube channel, Coach Gene Clemens. Until next time, ladies and gentlemen, take care of your chicken and take care of your mental. Peace. Peace.